1: This feels exactly like the thing that you do with your snooze button when you press it one too many times and you wake up mid-morning and you wonder where your day has gone. One twelfth of the year has already elapsed. January is uh, distant history and it's the 7th of February 2015. We're off to the library today to receive a warm welcome at the welcome. Hey, have you downloaded the Acast app yet to listen to the show? on? If you're on Android or iPhone, it's there for you. And it's packed with pictures and links and other goodies to accompany the show. We'll be talking more about that today, though. We're talking about a library. It is the 7th of February 2015, I'm in Quentin Wolfe, this is Londonist Out Loud.
0: Hey baby, let me take you down, so we'll play some strange sights and the sound you ain't
1: never seen the light before, just a song's through from the door. Hey baby, Sometimes on this podcast I find myself returning to a place I think I recognised, and it's the case today. I've arrived at the Wellcome Trust on Euston Road and been ushered through uh, several floors and elevators and so forth, and I find myself in an area which I think is connected more closely to the collection than to the trust, And when I came into this book-lined, galleried room, I thought I recognised it, and there seemed something a little bit odd about it, and I'm just getting to the bottom of that. I have been here before, I'm in a library, but all the books have gone, which is an interesting choice for somebody who until recently was the head of the library here. I'm talking to Simon Chaplin, and he is the newly appointed Director of Culture and Society at the Wellcome Trust. Hi, Simon. Hi there
2: and i have to say my change of title is not connected with the sudden loss of books from the library so
1: <laughs> well it would make sense it would make sense and it, so you've um, if i've understood this correctly you've remodelled this and this has been a pet project of yours for the last wee while
2: yeah i've been working on this with my colleagues from welcome collection so as some of your listeners may know welcome collection is this public venue on Euston road we explore the intersection between medicine life and art we do it through exhibitions and events part of Wellcome Collection has always been the Wellcome Library, which is the most fantastic collection of all sorts of stuff, broadly related to the history of medicine, but history of medicine in a very broad sense. So anything to do with human and animal health, our understanding of health in culture, lots of things that you probably wouldn't normally associate with medicine, like witchcraft and alchemy. The library has always been here, it's always been aimed at researchers and what we've tried to do as part of this recent makeover is find a way of creating something that's not quite a library but it's not quite an exhibition it takes the best elements of both we hope, brings them together And I think what we're hoping for is to create a space that encourages the people who come to Welcome Collection, particularly those people who are interested in a subject who want to delve a little bit deeper, for them to kick back, spend a bit more time here to explore some of the stuff we've got, and really to extend their visit to indulge their curiosity we talk about our visitors as being the incurably curious and this is a space for the people who are really seriously afflicted
1: yes there's a big conversation about accessibility to have there i know you've been well sometimes on the cutting edge of some of the issues there as well but there's been some interesting timings in terms of how the welcome trust has managed making things accessible and perhaps we'll talk a little bit more about that with the opening of the library though and, and encouraging people to read a little bit more and maybe extend their visit it seems to me like perhaps you're asking more of people than than simply for them to visit an art exhibition and that's a fairly straightforward thing which sort of people do you think are going to be coming up here
2: and pouring through the books good question actually i think it's still an experiment we haven't opened this space yet so i'm talking to you and it's still a closed space it's going to be open we hope by the end of february so perhaps by the time people are listening to this there'll be some more voices in the background as more people doing stuff in here what we do know about our visitors is about 20 percent of them they'll visit the bookshop while they're here they'll buy something and take it away so we kind of know they're readers uh we know that about 20 percent of our visitors when they leave they give us their evaluation they say i'd like to know a bit more about some of the things i've seen so we know there's that thirst there i don't think we're expecting everyone to come and spend hours and hours pouring over books or the other things we've got in this space but i suspect there's a lot of people who would just like the opportunity to do a little bit more than look at stuff in an exhibition and we have the kind of exhibitions here that do provoke a response they do make you stop and think and that's one of the nice things about coming to welcome collection it's nice not to kick people straight out on the street after that, to give them somewhere where they can go and think. And, you know, one of the nice things about this space, we hope, is it's also a place for people to leave their mark, to give us their comments, to give us some feedback, to leave stuff for other visitors to respond to in future. Yes, we found an example of this
1: interactivity at the uh, the desk here where we're doing the interview.
2: Yeah, so one idea we had was uh, when we wanted to put stuff into this space, there's lots of rare books we have in the library, obviously we can't put all of the rare books out for people just to pick up and handle you know not least because uh, some of this stuff's irreplaceable but we didn't want to turn it into a space full of computer screens and uh in interactive so we did something quite old-fashioned we turned our old books back into books we digitized them and then produced some really quite nice facsimiles they're really beautiful things to look at and touch and then we decided that one way of getting people to respond to them would be to provide bookmarks so they could bookmark stuff that they thought was interesting and leave it for other people to find. So I've got here, a, this we found on the table, this is uh, Ambrose Paré, a French uh, surgeon from the 16th century, his book of surgical instruments and anatomy. Uh, so it's really a kind of guide for uh, would-be surgeons in the, uh, in the Renaissance. Ambrose parry is one of the kind of leading figures in the history of surgery made huge improvements particularly in the treatment of wounds and uh, and someone's left a couple of bookmarks in here one of them goes uh bone setters tools question mark ah and when you can look at the tools you think yeah they're, they are a bit ah god uh and the other one the other one uh hey it's a fake nose a fake nose exclamation mark and not, it's not just a fake nose. Actually, I'm looking at it now. It's a fake nose with a fake moustache underneath. And, you know, there really is, you know, something quite beautiful about the idea of someone designing in the 1560s a false nose. I, I'm sorry, I've got, a, I've got a thing about false noses. One of my favourite films as a child was the, uh, the Ballad of Cat Blue. I don't know if you've seen it, with uh, Lee Marvin plays two roles as a kind of drunken gunslinger and also as this pantomime villain. And the pantomime villain has his nose shot off and it's replaced with a silver tie-on silver nose. And as a kid, I always thought the coolest thing you could ever have would be a silver nose. Who was the fella? He was either an astronomer or a
1: philosopher who had a a false Uh, metal nose. Tico Brahe. Yeah, that's the fella. Yeah, there's a, I think there's a, there's a great history of false noses to be written. I, th- I think I've spotted a potential problem uh, with this plan, though, because as you were reading that, I, I was checking out the spine of the volume we were referring to. And what it says on there is Ambrose Pare, and then the title Instrumenta Chirurgiae et Icones Anathomicae and I have no idea what that means. Uh, e- even now you've told me I might struggle to put that together and unless uh, I guess one knew who Paré was already. You've got some work to do to get to direct people to this book and, and get them to open it up, haven't you?
2: People do have to work a bit and I think that's one of the great things in life. You don't discover great stuff unless you spend a bit of time investigating. So it's very easy in an exhibition to sp- you spoon feed everything to everybody. Everything's out there on show. You can see everything. The difference with a library is that everything is there but you have to work quite hard to find it now we've gone halfway in this space we've made it easier than a regular library it's not just rows and rows of book spines and you know you somehow have to guess which book is going to be interesting we've picked out books that we think are fascinating we've mixed them in with a whole bunch of other stuff like board games and uh, physical interactives so things that you hold up and do Uh, loads of beautiful prints and drawings some fantastic objects as well but you have to work at it. And there's no doubt about that. And I think that's why it won't appeal to everybody. It's not the the easy kind of experience you get in a gallery. But I think there are plenty of people out there. We know there are plenty of people in London. I think there are plenty of people across the world who are prepared to put in a bit of effort to find cool stuff. And that's, that's interesting that, you, that what you're doing, if I've
1: understood it right, is making sure that uh, whatever somebody picks off the shelf is likely to be a little
2: more accessible than, say, p- a thousand pages of research data. It won't always be accessible in the sense that everything, not everything is easy, but it's always going to be interesting. So there is, there is nothing in this room, I can say hand on heart, there is nothing in this room that is boring, because we put it all in here deliberately.
1: I guess this is a great opportunity to describe the room, and it appeals to me, definitely. And if my memory is correct, the last time I was in here, there were rows upon rows of standard uh, 1970s library bookshelves. And uh, the, what we see now is, I'm struggling to find actually a decent metaphor for it. There's, there's a bit of a
2: Bordello feel to it, I've got to say. We... we... We actually have some of the bookshelves up on the gallery, so it's a two-storey space, there's a gallery running around it. The gallery's still part of the research library, so that's still got the old bookshelves, and uh, I can hear some rustling of paper. So there's actual researchers up there, probably getting annoyed at me talking in the background when they're trying to do some real research. So there is a sense of this still is part of a library. <laughs> partly because it's part of the research library there have been people looking on this space even though it's close to the public there have been people looking on it for the last few months and some of them have been commenting about it online the best description i've read about it online and you have to forgive my language here. you might want to bleep it out uh, it's a library said no,
1: hold on hold on we don't have a bleep button so we're going to have to substitute something i'll do a cough at the key moment okay ready
2: it's a library on the theme of bat <clears throat>
1: mental. <laughs> well, that, that works. Uh, certainly in terms of presentation, uh, up the staircase, and it's one of those big sweeping mansion-like staircases carved out of marble. There are scatter cushions and I guess a, a newly installed red carpet. There are easy chairs that look very much like they come from the 1950s. There's a 1920s piece of dental apparatus which is so steampunk it's uh, hilarious. It's a sort of all-in-one dental station. And it's got what every dentist needs, including a sh- a four-lantern chandelier to drop down on the patient. And uh, further along, well, that looks as though it belongs in the Victoria and Albert. It's a, sort of a mannequin without the
2: arms, but in red attire. The, the thing you could describe as a mannequin is, is a dress. So, And, yeah, it would blow in the V&A. It's a, it's a beautiful piece of... Um, Uh, contemporary dressmaking is actually made by an artist called Helen Storey and it's uh, inspired by work that she was doing with her sister Kate who's a a neurobiologist looking at uh, embryology so she's taken her designs from the development of the neural tube in the embryo and this is one of a whole series of dresses that she made that took these scientific ideas and then turned them into uh, physical things. And part of quite a long, what's now quite a long tradition of the Wellcome Trust funding work by artists that explores scientific ideas. Alongside that, there's a, a be- quite beautiful illuminated plinth with this, from a distance, a big glass lump on it. When you get up close to it, what you can see is it's the cast of someone's face, and it's an artwork by an artist called Catherine Dowson. And it's based on the masks that are made for radiotherapy, so the masks that help her. Uh, Uh, A clinician direct uh, a a beam uh, for someone if they're receiving radiotherapy for cancer and this beautiful thing contains within it the impression of the patient that has been treated. I think for us that's the kind of object that appeals these are all in some way medical or scientific things but they're not always obviously medical or scientific that's the great strength of the of welcome collection as a venue of welcome library as a collection of stuff within it that everything here is tied together at heart by this concern with human health but the, the concern isn't always obvious and that's why it makes it such an interesting place to explore that ethos certainly seems to permeate everything that
1: goes on here from the the, the gift shop to the exhibitions to the library. Um, I, I was wondering, because your, your background, you started out, I think, as a zoologist and you've progressed through various things and, and, and part of the reason we're here is because you've uh, moved from uh, one position to another just recently. I was just wondering uh, to the extent to which, um, uh, and maybe this is a false idea, a false premise to base a question on, but how many people who are hard scientists are sort of forced to knock the corners off Their hard science and uh, maybe accessible is the wrong word, but find a a slightly more approachable side to what they do. To what extent, people who uh, really aren't strictly speaking scientists or or don't wish to pursue a career in science, even having started out in science, Mm. um, might find this attractive as a sort of playground that's loosely associated with science. What's the 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 general profile?
2: I think the uh, one of the big challenges with science is that it tends to be regarded as a binary thing: you're a scientist or not a scientist. And yet most people live in some kind of grey area. There are, there are very few of us who don't have some kind of basic understanding of science. You know, One of the great triumphs of modern education is that we all get exposed to science at some stage. We all live in an environment which is heavily scientific, heavily technological. So it's pretty hard to exclude all of that from your life. And yet this, this idea persists that somehow, unless you can talk in equations, you're not a scientist. And that somehow only those people who are absolutely committed who talk in ways in language that's completely impenetrable about ideas that simply are beyond most people's comprehension only they are scientists that's something we work quite hard to break down scientists are human almost all of the scientists i know are capable of relating to other human beings and even the ones who can't try quite hard at it most of the time <laughs> one of the nice things about The way in which the scientific culture in Britain in particular has developed over the last 20 years has been this recognition that we don't have to regard it as a binary distinction. We've worked quite hard as an organisation, as the Wellcome Trust, to do that. When we fund scientific research, which is one of our primary objectives, we make sure that our researchers understand that it isn't just about the science. There's no excuse for not doing good science, that's what they have to do. But that isn't enough. They also need to make sure that their work engages with the broader public, which includes other scientists as well as people who are not involved in science, and that there's a degree of trust that exists between scientists and others. And without that trust, I don't think it's possible to have a thriving scientific culture. I think only when that trust exists... Is it possible to do great science? And it takes a bit of work to create that. One of the ways in which you start to create that trust is by explicitly putting science into places where you might not otherwise expect to see it. One of the things we think we try and do in Welcome Collection is create a venue that appeals to people who wouldn't necessarily choose to go to the Science Museum or the Natural History Museum. They might see themselves more naturally as visitors to the White Chapel or to Tate Modern. And yet there is plenty here that appeals to them and yet still reveals an awful lot about science. And I think we're not the only organisation that's doing that. There are lots of others out there breaking down these barriers. I think it has become easier, but there's still a lot more opportunity.
1: I, I very much understand the breaking down of barriers aspect of what you're saying. I think what I don't understand at the moment is the need for trust and what the, what trust means in the context that you're uh, mentioning.
2: I think it it means... Not that everybody should understand everything that goes on. There's an awful—you know—I've got a background in life sciences. There's a plenty of hard sciences that go utterly beyond my comprehension. But when I look at the work that's going on with the when Large Hadron Collider, system,
0: the and princes will be unavailable from five fifty p.m. The rare will also close at five fifty.
2: Just goes to show we're in a real working library here, folks. So you look at the large, large Hadron Collider. You look at the work that NASA do around space exploration. It's easier to trust that work because of the effort they put into explaining it to other people. And I think for me, that's the key. You know, that's what. Tr- that's how trust emerges by seeing science come out into into public life in ways that you wouldn't otherwise expect
1: is there not a danger in this somewhere because of course science has a reputation for or scientists I must say probably have a reputation for not being the most uh, PR minded or socially adept to the extent to which that's true is a whole other issue but is there a danger that significant resources and significant attention and time are going to be dragged away from actually doing the important bit of it to um, what seems a very modern malaise of everything having to be uh, public relations
2: to death Uh, yeah I don't think it's about public relations and I think that's uh, if it was then that definitely wouldn't be worth doing and I don't think it was also necessarily a huge drag there are plenty of times when actually you want to get your head down and work but I don't think anyone ever benefits from having their head down the entire time I don't think there's anybody who doesn't benefit from every now and again stepping back and looking around and thinking okay, what else is going on? And if you look at, uh, I mean, there's plenty of examples of history of great scientists who've come up with ideas that have drawn on work by other people, often work from outside their disciplines. Uh, you know, one of the, you know, the key icons we have in the library is uh, Francis Crick's uh, original sketch of the DNA molecule one of his sketches of the DNA molecule, from the time that he and Jim Watson were trying to work out what that structure was. You know, that was a piece of research that drew on the work of lots of other people, notably Rosalind Franklin, that drew on ideas from across the world. There's a degree of you know, scientific understanding there, absolutely, but also that kind of sense of sculpture, of space, of understanding relations that isn't possible just to do as a theoretical exercise.
1: Ah, well that's that's interesting. So there's an inbound communication stream going on, inspiration stream going on as well.
2: I think I think so. You know, definitely, science can be an intellectual process that it's about in, internalizing information and, and reconceptualizing it yourself. But I think that process of reconceptualization is aided by having other people to challenge and open up ideas, and often to, for those challenges to come from outside of your discipline, from outside of science even. And that's, I think, one of the benefits to science of this emphasis on public engagement. It shouldn't just be about public relations. It's not just about correcting a deficit, that there are people out there who don't understand science. Hell, let's teach them a bit more science. It's about a two-way dialogue. And I think when it exists properly as a two-way dialogue, it becomes more successful. Well, we're going to come back in just a moment, and one of the things I'm extremely keen to talk
1: about is the opening up of information that was previously locked away and standing very little chance of being seen by anybody, particularly perhaps those who needed the most to see it. We'll take a quick word from our sponsor before we do that.
0: Londonest Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet or desktop, or burned to a CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk slash Londonist and click through.
1: We are at the Welcome Trust. Well, actually, I think we're at the Welcome Collection. I'm just trying to locate...
0: As a person with a very deep voice...
1: I think we're probably more collection than trust today. With me, Dr. Simon Chaplin, who is the Director of Society and Culture. It would be interesting, I think, to take apart the job title, because it could mean anything.
2: It could mean anything. Uh, I like to say that it means my responsibility is for the whole of society and for all cultures, which I think is a pretty broad job remit. So you're just generally in charge now? (laughs) (laughs) What it does is it highlights the fact that the Wellcome Trust, which is probably, if it's known by people, and it's not all known by as many people as we'd like, if it's known by people, it's generally known as a scientific research organisation. It also has, however, this very strong interest in what happens outside the laboratory. Wellcome Collection is part of that. Our funding for public engagement, for museums, for science centres is part of that. The work we do with humanities researchers, medical historians, people working in medical humanities, social scientists is part of that too. So it's nice to have some way of bringing all of that stuff together. I think not to try and make it a ghetto within the Trust, but to recognise that's an important pillar of what the Wellcome Trust does.
1: Do you know what? I was going to talk about publications, but I just want to put that to one side because I know that you've done, uh, I think your PhD actually
2: was on the Hunterian Museums. Yeah, I I was for a long time I was the curator and then director of the Hunterian Museum at the Royal College of Surgeons, so I I spent uh, 11 years surrounded by bits of 18th century body and uh, was lucky enough to be involved in the redisplay of the Hunterian Museum, which now it turns out was 10 years ago, which is slightly <laughs> scary. but Terrifying, yes. And, I mean, it's fair to say your expertise is anatomical museums, right? Yeah, I've, I've always been interested, actually not just through my PhD, but I've always been interested through my career. I began as a, as a zoologist. I drifted into history and philosophy of science. I went to work at the Science Museum in London as a graduate trainee and became an assistant curator on the medical collections there. And then I went to the Royal College of Surgeons before I joined Welcome, So my, my, my work has always been in institutions which are you know, to some extent scientific but have a you know, strong public focus. And I think there is something fascinating about the way in which that isn't just a new phenomenon. So what was great about the Hunterian Museum is here is a collection from the 18th century put together by somebody who was working at the margins of science doing dissections of human and animal bodies at a time when that was still quite problematic and he put together a John Hunter, this surgeon, put together a collection of about thirteen thousand preserved specimens, and he turned them into a museum that he had in his house in Leicester Square and open to the public. And for me, there was a moment when I was researching John Hunter, and I had this epiphany around what it means to expose your work to other people that here was somebody who you might have expected to be secretive, to be protective of his work for all kinds of reasons, and yet he took exactly the opposite approach and put it out there for others to see. He wasn't the only person doing that at the time. It turns out to have been a common tactic on the part of anatomists. On the back of that, anatomy went from being this very occasional, rather secretive activity, to being something that every medical student had to do. It was written into law through the Anatomy Act, a legal supply of bodies. It transformed people's perception of anatomy, it transformed the practice of anatomy, and that came about not just through scientific advance and through advances in understanding and learning, but through a change in public perception. And for me, that was a great example from the 18th century of why public engagement is good.
1: What was it that had Hunter make this, uh, and others, uh, make this counterintuitive move?
2: I don't know what it was that started. I think, as with most things, it was a gradual process rather than some kind of revolution. There wasn't one moment when, you know, from one year to the next, it suddenly became acceptable to put bodies on show. So you can see what the hunters were doing, both brothers, both anatomists, in creating their museums, coming out of a longer tradition of of cabinets of curiosity, of, of different sorts of public show that existed in the 16th and 17th century. But what they did was to reformulate that and to present it more explicitly as a medical or scientific museum, to do so in ways that kind of reflected back on their authority as anatomists, but it, but didn't try and put that behind closed doors. You can only ask an historian
1: this. What have we no longer with us that would fall into your area of expertise
2: in terms of institutions or maybe habits? In a sense of museums that we've lost, oh, the... It turns out that there were about uh, 30 or 40 collections of anatomical specimens in London in the late 18th century, and at least half a dozen of them were formed into quite substantial museums. The two Hunterian Museums, one at the Royal College of Surgeons in London one at the uh, Hunterian Museum in Glasgow, are the only two that survive in anything like their original form the rest of them you know there was one that was destroyed by fire there was one that was sold at auction split up there was one that was sold to russia in the early 19th century it may still be there in st petersburg i've never been i'd love to go and find out if that collection is still there and on show those museums have been lost to us i think there's a long history in london in particular of there being these museums particularly of natural history sometimes of anatomy that come and go And perhaps in their going, create the impression that they've never been, so that every time something new comes along, we're looking, wow, why have we never seen this before? They've been there for hundreds of years on and off.
1: What about where we stand, and I don't know whether it's possible to separate the the London attitude from the national attitude, whichever nation we happen to be talking about there as well. What have been the tides, and what do we find ourselves in the midst of at the moment? Is there interest in this
2: type of stuff on the rise or on the wane? What's special about London, I think, has always been its size. So obviously London's grown over the years, but comparatively London has always been a big city. And there is something about a big city that breeds a different kind of mindset. I think it's you know, it's partly a, a, a function of scale, of diversity, of the, the ability to differentiate and to carve out careers that you just wouldn't be able to sustain in a smaller uh, smaller environment, smaller city. And as a result, I think London has created a variety of roles that just wouldn't flourish in the same way elsewhere that's one of the things that gives it its cultural richness its scientific richness as well and i think those two things are interchange you know are interlinked i feel that there probably is something too about london that is to do with an ever-changing population the kind of constant uh, bringing in of ideas from outside as people come in from outside and that can be just from outside the city it can be from outside the country London has worked quite well as a melting pot in the past and uh, has absorbed different cultures has allowed elements of them to remain distinctive so it's not a sense of becoming homogenous perhaps in the way that American cities have tended towards homogeneity Uh, but I think at the same time has allowed uh, uh, something distinctive, a kind of metropolitan atmosphere to develop that is different to anything elsewhere.
1: I can hear that elitism argument coming around the corner from the places further away from, particularly not in the southeast. Does the Wellcome Trust reach out?
2: Yeah, our, our, our remit is, uh, is global, so we fund across the UK, we fund outside the UK as well. I don't think we would regard London as being a you know, prime focus for funding because we want to have fun, you know, stuff done in London because it's different. I think London generates its own opportunities, so you know, we have a rich selection of research in, research-led universities here. They generate an awful lot of research applications to us, and they end up with more funding. Uh, but one of our biggest funding centres is University of Dundee, one of the leading centres in the world for biomedical sciences. So um, I think we recognise talent wherever it exists. One of the interesting things about the way in which the Trust is developing is we've, we've started out with a number of key areas that we fund. So one of historically of our key areas has been genetics and genomics. We're expanding out into different areas now, particularly around population health, around uh, uh, understanding the relationship between environment and health, looking at social sciences as well as humanities, going beyond history of medicine to looking at all kinds of humanities and their relationships to health. And that means that you look for interesting research wherever it's being done rather than just concentrating on one or two big universities now that's,
1: uh, I'm not sure what to call it, it could be called a conversion it uh, seemed to be that they were taking opposite sides at one, one point, uh, sciences and humanities over um, some of the choices being made about what was being uh, made public access in terms of uh, scientific research and what wasn't. I was scanning through some pieces, you've written one for the Guardian in particular, where if I've understood it correctly, and I think this applies to a whole a range of disciplines academics at, at a particular stage in their academic life will create a very detailed research piece which in terms of actually being circulated is uh, is limited because if it's commercially saleable it's extremely expensive not very many people are going to access it naturally and so these things often containing the creme de la creme of knowledge kind of end up not being looked at by anybody, and one of the parts of this, I think, was to open it up. But it seemed as though there was a, a hoo-ha, is the technical uh, term for it, with uh, humanities experts as well. Uh, could you unpack that? Yeah,
2: there's, there's been a long tradition. Uh, no, it's a tradition. Twenty years um, of encouraging scientific research, journal articles in particular, to be made openly accessible. So the idea is, particularly if your research is publicly funded, the output of that research in the sciences tends to be peer-reviewed articles and those articles get published in journals and mostly in the past those journals have been available uh, through subscription and so the readership of that research is limited to those people who subscribe to the journal (coughs) there is an argument that says well hang on a second if the public funded this research why is the output of it being locked up behind a publisher's paywall now it's not as clear-cut as that because of course publishers add a lot of value They, they enable the research to be disseminated so Although there are some ways in which you can look at disseminating research completely for free, you just do it, you just send out your paper yourself, you put it on the web yourself. By and large, there is value in the existing publishing model. what we 've tried to develop at the trust is a way of building into the research funding a payment that enables the publisher to take the cost of making this research available and therefore not have to charge anybody else that 's been our open access policy it 's worked really well in the sciences. It's interesting in the last couple of years, what we've seen is a change not just on the part of the Trust, um, which has always applied its policy to all of the research we fund, whether it's humanities research or science research, but for other funders like Research Councils UK, um, who look after the majority of university research in the UK to develop their own open access policy. And they too have expanded that to include sciences and humanities and arts. Now, the difference is that uh, their funding for the humanities is much, much bigger than ours is. And suddenly, it brings a whole bunch of people who weren't touched by an open access policy under its umbrella. In hindsight, maybe that change could have been communicated more effectively. Maybe there could have been more negotiation about the detail of it. It certainly caught some people by surprise, and I think they reacted badly to it. Partly, it's around this ever-present sense on the part of academics that you know they get a lot of rules that they have to follow and it gets irritating when someone invents a new rule that they have to follow i kind of have some sympathy for that you know but it's part of the sense of academic freedom that you should actually be allowed to do things the way you want but i think the fundamental argument still applies that if the research is publicly funded it should be publicly available an interesting case then applies in the humanities because a lot of research gets published as books and not journal articles uh, can you make a book open access? Well, that's kind of a harder thing to do because it's not just about putting a journal article online. Books get distributed in different ways. Actually, there's a lot of people, myself included, prefer to have a physical book to hold and to read. It's, uh, apart from anything else, it stops you dropping a Kindle in the bath. And so it's been a challenge then to develop a model that would say, OK, what does an open access book look like? And what we were trying to do when we introduced this policy you referred to a couple of years ago was to say, you know what, we're not entirely sure, but we're going to start funding open access books in whatever model. And let's see what publishers can come up with. And I think actually that's, that's, that's been successful. We are seeing the first books come out now. And you get a physical book, but they also get a free version online. And then the people who want to buy the physical book can buy it. If they want to look at the free version online, they can do so. But
1: now, why did that put some people's noses
2: out of joint? I think partly in, in the case of our, our policy, I don't think it did. I think actually it was much more to do with the broader university policy change. And it was the, uh, the issue around um, journal articles for humanities and social sciences rather than books. I think the issue there was that there are lots of journals that get published which didn't have an open access policy. So suddenly you're saying to a researcher, you've got to do this thing, and they're saying, well, hang on a second, but the article, the journal I've got my article published in, doesn't allow me to do that. What, what do I do? And oh, we're putting the researcher in a really difficult position. That will change over time as uh, publishers adapt to this model. With books, it was different. I think there was partly a concern there that were we going to suddenly cut off the ability of researchers to publish a book that might actually make them money? You know, and it happens. Um, you know, there's plenty of really good books out there that have come from academic research but have crossed over into a broader audience. And I think for us, that was also a question. Now, what, what, does, that, what does that mean? And I think, actually, the answer is that doesn't matter. If a book has crossed over and is reaching a broad audience because people are willing to buy it, then that actually reduces the need for open access. That suggests that something's working. There's no problem with public engagement there. There's no problem with public access because people are recognising the value in it. But there's also plenty of academic books that don't do that. The majority of academic books don't cross over. The majority may have a print run of a few hundred. And then it seems like an awful waste that, you know, are you saying if you're interested in this niche subject, the only way to do it is to splash out 70 or 100 quid on a book? That doesn't seem to be a very good model. So I think their open access can work. So it seems like a very good way to
1: lose information if you're only doing a small print run and uh, hoping they will survive. As we come to the end of the recording today, uh, I, I guess one of the questions uppermost in my mind is how, having poured so much of yourself into the, oh, sounds disgusting into the library in the last, uh, what is it, four years, I think, how is it to walk away
2: Well, the great thing is I haven't walked away. I'm still in. I'm still in the same organisation, and the library is still part of the bit of the trust that I look after. I'm still closely involved in it. But you know, you're going to be handing your baby over. I
1: think there's an interim uh, manager in place at the moment, but you're you're going to be handing this over to somebody uh, permanently.
2: I don't worry about that in the slightest. I think there are. We've put the library into a fantastic position, and the whole place has been refurbished. We've got this massive programme of digitisation to put stuff online we're going great i think there's a fantastic opportunity not just for someone new coming in but for the team that we've got here to build on what we've achieved over the last four years so i guess my job is to help them do that to give them more encouragement to you know help slide a bit more money their way to make sure they can do it and to look for the opportunities so one of the great things about the welcome library is that it's this fantastic collection but it is a single location on the Euston Road is there scope for a whole string of welcome libraries? Now, should we be looking at working with public libraries and putting collections into there for people to explore wherever they are we can do stuff online, but there is still something about libraries as physical venues that I think is really important. You know, one of the things we try to do with the reading room is to reimagine what a physical library might look like. And I'd be really disappointed if that stops here. So, so no, I don't worry about leaving the library behind. I think um, we're taking the library with us.
1: The big concern at the time of recording in this institution, as far as I'm aware, is a staircase. Uh, Everything, in terms of the renovation that's been going on, everything now seems to hinge on the completion of uh, an enormous spiral staircase.
2: Everything is dependent on the completion of a staircase. It's been the biggest architectural intervention in terms of this project. So we've been rebuilding the building for the last uh, year and a half. The biggest thing we had to do was to punch a hole through two floors and put in this new. It's not quite a spiral; it's more of a dynamic stair, I think the architects call it. Uh, so it's kind of an off-kilter uh, spiral. It takes people from the ground floor up to the second floor. Was it supposed to be a spiral staircase? <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be dynamic, but that's that's one of the reasons why it's been so complex to build. It will be the most striking architectural intervention. It's going to look fantastic. It's hidden behind hoardings at the moment i've walked up and down it so i can tell you it's there i uh, know it doesn't bounce like the millennium bridge so that's also a good thing and i think it will transform people's use of the space because one of the people who know well, collection people who have been here will know that it's a, a building that was designed for one thing and then used for another and we've always struggled to get people up the building to make more use of the space that we've got what we've done is made that really easy i think
1: A final word, I guess, on what people can expect if and when the uh, staircase is done in February, I think. What else will be going on in the same
2: month? So by the end of February, when you come to Welcome Collection, there will be two permanent exhibition galleries, Medicine Man and Medicine Now there'll be two temporary exhibition galleries one will have our year-long exhibition sexology which is on at the moment um so that will be going on through until the end of november 2015 fantastic exhibition about the science of sex how scientists have understood sexuality alongside that will be a second exhibition on forensics so our two key exhibitions by the end of february be one on sex and one on death and i think if those don't draw people in then you know god help you alongside that our fantastic cafe bookshop a new restaurant up on the at the top of the building we've got a new research hub with a group of really exciting researchers from a range of disciplines beavering away exploring the subject of busyness and rest and what better place to do that than in the center of london so i hope that by the end of 2015 What we'll have is a venue that's buzzing with the kinds of fantastic things that Wellcome Collection has been known for, but is also starting to reach beyond that to encourage its visitors to delve a little bit deeper in the reading room and the library, and also developing its own ideas through the uh, research group in the Wellcome Hub, and taking those ideas out into the city and thinking about what it means to be in the heart of Metropolis. What does that mean for your life and for your work and your health?
1: Oh, the word hub gets overused and abused. Uh, here, though, that seems absolutely the right description. Um, do come along to the Eastern Road and uh, poke your nose into a book and sling a bookmark in there if you find something uh, interesting. Uh, for now, uh, Dr Simon Chaplin, thanks very much. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to Dr Simon Chaplin. Thanks to, to Holly Story, Bernie Barkley and Mark Barr theme and incidental music was by songs from the howling sea i'm N. quentin wolf